2020 is here, and there are a lot of question marks for manufacturers around what is ahead for the economy. What does this mean for housing projections? What does this mean for my sales, my marketing, my product development? In this episode, we bring on an expert who deals with all of these questions and shares insights on what you need to do to stay ahead. There's some really great, valuable nuggets here, and I'm excited to get in the show. Let's get into the episode. Welcome to the Smarter Building Materials Marketing Podcast, helping you find better ways to grow leads, sales, and outperform your competition. And now, here are your hosts, Zach Williams and Beth Popnikoloff. All right, everybody, welcome to Smarter Building Materials Marketing, where we believe your online presence should be your best salesperson. I am Zach Williams, alongside my co-host, Beth Popnikolov. We've got Todd Tomalak, who's with John Burns Real Estate Consulting on the show with us today. Welcome to the show, Todd. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. So, Todd, why don't you just kick us off and tell us a little bit about your organization and what you do at John Burns Real Estate Consulting. Sure. So, John Burns is a housing research and consulting firm. We've got not quite 80 people, and 100% of our time, all we do is try to understand what's happening in residential construction. And that includes everything from the builders, the new construction universe, which is kind of where our bread and butter has come from, as well as everything that else that touches resi. So repair and remodeling, Depot has used us in their investor relations materials, you know, single family rental. We just published a new single family rent index. Uh, anything, if it touches resi, we're deep in the weeds. And so really what, what we do is we help executives figure out how they want to invest in housing. And that can be either direct like builders choosing where they're going to allocate their capital, or it could be building product companies, figuring out what type of products to to create, develop, and what parts of the market are, are going, to, going to grow. And what I do, I lead our research and consulting for building products. So I have the, the really exciting job of being able to figure out what our outlook is between different types of building products, all of our housing you know, theses, what it means for different segments, and then trying to think through what's going to be different over the next couple of years. That's really cool. And I think we actually met at HERI earlier this year, the Home Improvement Remodeling Institute, their, their big event. And I love the talk that you gave, and which is why we're really excited to have you on the show. Can we just, you know, just dive straight in? Can you tell us how you view the outlook for 2020 for building products in the housing, in the housing market as a whole? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, by the way. I think we're anticipating very, very positive things near term, meaning the, the next six months, we could see really, really strong orders in building products, both new and repair and remodeling. We're a little bit more cautious, say, over the medium term. We know we're pretty deep into the cycle. There's some other issues potentially emerging. So we do have a recession planned in in our forecasting horizon, which means we're probably looking at 2021 or 2022 someplace in there. Beyond that, there's a lot of interesting, really positive tailwinds for building products as well as housing, which I can get, get into. But you know, positive, near-term cautious, medium-term, encouraged long-term. I was going to say, you know, as a manufacturer, it's probably like this big, like deep breath, like, oh my gosh, what is Todd going to say? Like, is things going to be good? Or are they going to be bad? <laughs> I almost like wanted to kind of like bait a very pregnant pause there between my question and your response, Todd. But I'm glad to hear that things are looking good. Todd, first, I want to say that I'm really excited to have you here because the John Burns real estate consulting People are my favorite follows on LinkedIn by far, like by oh, far. That's great. I've never actually met John Burns, but he 
has to know my name because anything that comes on LinkedIn, I like or comment. Well, I just, well, I will tell you, I've talked to John Burns. And he mentioned this weird girl, Beth, that always comments on his stuff. No, (laughs) biggest fan, Beth. (laughs) And no, I mean, he's a big fan. So, you know, that admiration is mutual. And we should have you guys meet him sometime. I'm sure he'd like that. I don't know what it's like for other people. I imagine like that's what it's like for other people to meet celebrities. But like, I think I would be genuinely starstruck. Like those are my celebrities is people who, who hoard the customer research data. That would be my starstruck moment. We do a lot of work, not just with the building. I mentioned this before, but we'd work with a lot of, you know, like private equity guys, uh, hedge funds use a lot of our, our research to try to get an early read on say housing starts or some of the Love different it. building product categories. And I was in New York last month sitting with, a private equity guy, John was there too. And the guy turned to me and said, it's like meeting with the godfather of how Yes, so, yes. Okay, um, good, yeah. good. That makes you feel better. <laughs> I don't know what celebrities I would like to meet, but there's like a handful of people in the research space that I'm like, can I have them at my dream dinner situation where I just get to pick their brains? It's pretty close. Yeah, no, it's great. So we've got loads of questions, that being said. So first, I want to ask one question. I read an article recently about some of the larger home builders starting to integrate things like Alexa and Google Home into their new construction build. My question for you from a research standpoint is, do you see that type of technology integration as gimmicky or is it in response to actual demand? Yeah. I mean, I think the future absolutely has to go that way, but we're, we don't have it figured out yet. So I, I don't. I, there's definitely a demand for smart home products. So we do a huge survey of consumers who are actively like new home shoppers, well over 20,000 people who are in the funnel. They're looking at buying new homes. And then we see what type of products that they're willing to spend more on. And it turns out that some of those smart tech features are definitely things that they're willing to write the check for, particularly when it comes to security. And it doesn't matter, you know, by demographic, it's not a young thing, it's you know, it's not, you know, a techie thing. Even some of the more older folks who are, you know, empty nesters buying a home as a retiree, they're the number one most likely buyer who's willing to write the check for smart products as long as it's security. So that kind of smells like that the category's got some some legs to it. How I kind of think about smart home right now is it's it's not unlike, you know, a hundred years ago, you saw all these these inventors trying to come up with aircraft design and some planes had like eight wings and there was no agreement on what even the shape and design of an airplane should look like. That's where we're at right now for smart. (laughs) It's a great analogy. There's, there's all this stuff and there's really, you know, nothing integrates, you know, Google doesn't want to work with Alexa anymore and vice versa. And, and everyone's kind of creating their own operating system. It's definitely going to be the thing of the future, but what we see today will not be what that is. We haven't gone through that consolidation yet to say like, this is the standardized way of doing things. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, Todd, one thing that I'm really curious to get your input on is the shifts that you're seeing from the types of homes being built and what that means for product development for manufacturers. If I'm a manufacturer listening to this and I just hear you say, you know, the economy is going to look strong for the next six months, you know, new builds is going to be, it's going to be excellent, whatever that might be. I might be saying great, but if I'm looking over the hill and I'm trying to figure out where are things headed, what are things that manufacturers need to be aware of from a product development perspective? Yeah, that's a super important question. So let me caveat that statement by saying we do a survey every month 
that just has a huge sample size of home builders. Not quite 20% of home sales are picked up in that every month, I mean, but it's a fantastic early read on what's going to happen. And the numbers that we just saw were huge, uh, 38% growth year over year in signed contracts for new homes, which you know, can confront run the start because the builders got the signed contract and now they're going to start the project. It doesn't dollarize for the building product companies until the first half of next year. So that's the type of numbers that I'm mentioning. The interesting thing is when we look at the shift in home design, there's probably two or three themes that we're seeing. First of all, there's been a clear pivot from the move-up homes to more entry-level. A lot of that's an affordability thing and a shift of the type of buyers that we're seeing a pretty clear definitive move from homes that were kind of the middle-of-life purchases towards a first-time buyer home. But then along with that, there's such a shortage of land. And even the developers that we work with, we see you know, what, what they're looking at and what they're investing in. There's such a shortage of land that we're seeing densities get a lot tighter. So this means a lot more homes per acre a little bit more creative layout of the home. So just two examples would be, you know, if, if you're right next door to an, another home, and I mean like right next door, you don't want your windows lining up so you see each other because you'd see into each other's home and there's zero privacy. So we see the shape of the windows changing, getting higher, becomes more of a, you know, ambient light type product. Um, but that means that there's probably a total different types of components and glass that you're using and definitely, you know, a different design. We also see some pretty interesting creative use of, you know, you have a small space, maybe it's, say it's, it's 1,700 feet, but there's fewer walls and the back wall, uh, we're seeing some pretty creative use of the backyard. So there's a company that was purchased about a year and a half ago that was Western Window System. It was purchased by PGT. Mm-hmm. But their whole product was, you know, basically this accordion window that was a wall for the back part of your home that... You could open it right up, and now you can freely walk from the inside of your you know, living room to your back deck, and it feels like you have living space that's much, much larger. So what we're seeing that do for the building product companies is, obviously, it's great if you're the right window manufacturer, but it also is a big deal you know, if you make those yard products that it turns out that if, if it's part of your regular day-to-day living space, you're probably willing to splurge on a little bit nicer decking a little bit nicer grill and hardscapes and things like that, even though it's an entry-level home. So it's really a shift in design. So just as a follow-up to that, Todd, who do you see is doing it well? What manufacturer is really pacing with the shift in demands and innovating from a product standpoint? Ooh, well, that's kind of a loaded question. And I, and I would put it back to you. I suspect that you have a read even better than I in certain manufacturers of what they're seeing, but just a couple that come to mind. So Trex has been the darling of Wall Street for the last three years for, for a reason. They've got huge margins, clearly selling a premium price point product that replaces wood, even towards entry-level buyers that we're seeing they're buying that. They've come out with some pretty... And, and the other decking manufacturers have done the same where it's basically a lower price point, but still composite, really high quality product that makes your backyard you know, fantastic and beautiful and you don't have to maintain it. Any of those type of products are interesting. I, actually, I'm pretty interested to see, I just saw the, the announcement that they came out with cladding for this year. So that's going to be a big splash. To me, I think the decking, the outdoor space has way more players today than it did three years ago. So it's probably a smart move that they're pivoting towards looking at other products. There's a lot of new entrants there that are going to get more competitive. So you know, I think they've done well. We'll see. Time will tell whether or not they continue to do well. And I think the other 
kind of the category that seems pretty interesting too. Now, this is a little bit more of an esoteric category, but I'm I'm kind of a sucker for it. So Kohler Company has a subsidiary called Ansax, which mm-hmm. is basically their high-end tile and stone. Oh, yes. they, they came out with a product last year called Crackle. Did, did you guys see that? Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yep. They had it on display at KBiz, right? Yeah. Fascinating, yeah. right? Yeah. So it was the, the cull from the toilet plant, all the vitreous, China, basically repackaged, sold with a fantastic glaze and then put it as a premium. To me, here's what's interesting about that. I've seen all sorts of work looking at, you know, whether or not consumers will pay more for environmentally friendly or green. What they did with that product was the equivalent of a Prius, meaning that, you know, it's green, it's environmentally conscious, but it's also very much a blatant social signal towards anyone who comes in the home that sees that and they go, oh, what's that? How come what's the story there? Uh, As opposed to something that's hidden like insulation or something else that, you know, maybe it does save money or it is good good for the environment, but no one sees. They made that type of choice a very deliberate thing that a consumer can point to another consumer and, you know, have a discussion about. It's all about millennials love that. Oh man. Millennial homeowners love when people are like, what's that then you get to tell them how environmentally responsible you are. I can say that because I am a millennial and I do genuinely love that. (laughs) (laughs) Not hating on anything. Todd, one thing I want to ask you about though is you know, there's an article that came out recently in the Wall Street Journal that talked about the exit of baby boomers from their homes to retired living and, and things of that nature. How do you foresee that impacting the new construction space? Are, do you think that's going to hit new construction because there's going to be this excess of inventory and buildup? Or do you feel like it's not really going to impact things because there's so much pent up demand on the part of millennials to really get into the housing market? That's a fantastic question. Did you see, I saw that reposted on LinkedIn. It just went wild. Yes. I don't know if you saw John Burns. So we were just talking about John Burns. He's got like 700,000 followers. Did you see his response to that article? No, tell me. What did he say? I mean, he basically blasted it. And the, the concept was that it was, you know, his view was that it was a pretty superficial analysis uh, that didn't account for the influx of immigration. So, you know, and I guess when I, when I look at the same numbers, you do see, you know, at any static point in time, if you exclude immigration, it looks like there's going to be a definite fall off in the number of, you know, occupants and residents. And then we stack on the people who are moving from other areas to live here. Uh, things look great. When I see that, you know, this, this is just my own reaction. When I see discussion about, you know, areas kind of dying out because these boomers are going to move away, I see it as a lot of opportunity. And here's why. We're in a housing market right now where the key problem is affordability. I mean, I, I don't think it matters where you live. That's one of the topics that's being discussed. Builders are looking at investing in like these secondary and tertiary markets because in the main markets, land costs have gone up so, so high. So when we, when we kind of take the flip side of that topic of you have an aging population that are going to be aging out of their homes, And they're going to be replaced by younger cohorts that we do believe. We think we're going to net out ahead in terms of the number of owner households today than, you know, or in 2025 than versus what is today, even despite that age out. It's exciting because when we look at what young buyers do when they buy those older homes, they do a whole lot of stuff. They don't buy the home and just live in it, right? It's a tremendous home improvement story. And I I would say it's a really personal, the first home that I bought. So I live in Wisconsin. 
was Green Bay Packer color, green and gold. And it was the cheapest home on the street. We bought it because it was a deal. And whoever had lived in it before had just you know left it in that condition. They needed a ton of work. And we put so much money and time and energy into it. And it's not an isolated case. When we look in the data, if you take a younger first-time buyer and you don't do anything else, there's no improvement in the economy, you don't give them credit, and you know, and, and not, nothing else, no other tailwinds. You just put a younger first-time buyer in that older home, we see almost a 35% increase in the count, like the physical number of remodeling projects. Wow. They put a little bit lower cost products in than maybe what the older residents put in. So, you know, maybe they don't put quite as high quality, you know, cabinets and things like that in. But when I look at the right channels, that seems like a boon for anything that's Home Depot, Lowe's, any retail, any e-commerce. It's definitely a huge wave of potential for, you know, if you believe that we will both be a year older next year, then you also believe that those households will age out of their home and they'll be replaced by these other ones. It's a huge opportunity. Okay, so that's very, very interesting stuff. I just need to know if you have a picture of that house so we can put it in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) I should find it. I'm sure I do. It was fantastic. I mean, like, if we don't have that, then I want everybody who's listening to this to email Todd after the show. (laughs) To <laughs> demand it. Demand, demand this house be shown. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not the future. No green and gold home. Okay. Although I'm a Packers fan. I'm sorry. I'm thinking my brain got stuck on all the maroon and orange houses that I've seen lately, Zach. Sorry, that's sorry for the just complete pregnant pause there. <laughs> Let me share one other thing, too, that I guess, you know, was a so we didn't really talk about this, but because we work with a lot of the different, you know, companies and investors that are trying to figure out just how to play housing, like what to do. That means a lot of times we see the land and we see which land they're looking at developing. And we have an opinion on what type of homes will be built. And we get to see how that's underwritten. But then we also get to see what actually gets built and who who buys it and what gets sold. And one of the things that we were really surprised at a few years ago was there was these communities. Have you heard about Serban? I mean, that's, I don't know, that's a buzzword that our demographer, Chris Porter and John, coined a couple of years ago. So it's basically urban living, but in the suburbs. So it you know, mm-hmm, looks and mm-hmm. feels like you, there's walkability, that type of high density, right? Kind of the same characteristics we were talking about before. So we saw some of these urban developments come in, beautiful multifamily dwellings. And they were targeted for first-time buyers, basically like your millennial profile. And then who bought it? was the nicest units were, you know, came in and were gobbled up by new retirees. Yeah. And there were some millennials that lived in there too. Sure, um, sure. But that kind of tells me kind of, that's an interesting signal too, that, you know, those type of communities were had a lot more broad appeal than originally, you know, maybe we might've thought, maybe we would have written them off to just one demographic. It may not just be an age thing. It might be more of a societal thing. And there's a few other shifts that I can think to, you know, that are different today within housing, but maybe probably with implications more broadly across society that we see um, regardless of age. So for instance, the mobility rate, right? So households move significantly less frequently, not quite half as often today as they did 20 years ago in 99. Um, And that's true whether you're an owner or renter, it's true whether you're, you know, older or younger, it just continues to hold up. We've seen the overall move rate decline significantly. Which means that if you're looking at getting someone into the home of their dreams, either by renovation or building a new home or building products so that it's the right thing for them, 
you get kind of fewer kicks at the cat, so to speak. You know, there's fewer opportunities that the household's going to move. They're likely going to match up sooner. And it also means that there's probably a little bit more of a renovation story just because they're going to be in that home for longer periods. And so there's going to be a little bit of different choices on the type of products that they put in, um, maybe more frequent updates. I, I would even make the case that this whole shift to composite products that we've seen, say, over the past five years might not have been as severe, might not have been as strong if we had people moving way more frequently like they did 20, 30 years ago. But they're staying in their homes. So it makes more sense to write a bigger check for something you don't have to maintain. Yeah, I remember you uh, mentioning that stat in your talk at Heary. What is it, like 10 years ago, the average person moved every seven years and now it's like every 13 or something like that? Yeah, I mean, so I've seen different numbers. Everyone kind of puts a different spin on how long people stay in their home. The numbers that I like to use just because I understand them and I can kind of work through the math is I like using the census mobility numbers. And the thumb rule was, you know, 20 years ago, not quite 10% of households moved in a given year, a little bit below that. And today we're, you know, in the fives, which implies that, you know, if you took the inverse of that, you know, this, it's an algebra that we don't have to get into, but it'll imply that people have to be in their home but not almost twice as long. That has to be really meaningful for the types of products you buy for your home. And then the other thing that's shifting right now too, that really wasn't an issue last cycle or the cycles before, is now we have all this capital that's coming into institutionally owned single family rental properties. And you know, if you think about how it used to be trying to like look at existing home sales, forecasting, remodeling, or building products growth, it used to be, you know, if I went to go buy that Green Bay Packer home, I had to sell a different home, right? And so it's inventory neutral. But a first-time buyer buys a home and they don't have to sell another home, so they remove a unit from the inventory. And these single-family rental operators, you know, which have a lot of cash, are coming in and they're basically buying units to hold to rent out with no plans to dispose of those units. So you're seeing a lot of units absorbed from the inventory at the same time as you have continued demand and need for housing. To me, that smells like a recipe for continued home price appreciation, which is great for remodeling. Todd, I want to go back one or two points. You mentioned in the prime areas that we all would think of as major metropolitan areas, almost the land has become so expensive that builders are looking to the third, you know, second, third, fourth most popular places to build. Are there areas that you see as main up-and-coming regions in the next three to five years that manufacturers should be looking into gaining loyalty now so that they're a, an, a leader in that geographic region when, you know, a housing boom hits, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, that's a really thoughtful question. So one of the things I think that makes our research really unique is we do all of our analysis and forecast starting at the local housing market. So we have a really good sense of, say, even the difference between Houston versus Austin versus Dallas, mm. um, and then it's all rolled up. And that includes our housing start number and our you know home price appreciation and all those things. So what we're really seeing, and this isn't to discount kind of those traditionally strong markets like Southern California and Florida right. and Atlanta, like those will probably, in Houston, they'll continue to be great markets. They're fantastic. But there is a definite acceleration in these secondary and tertiary markets. And one example that I would give you, so the, the kind of the common characteristic is that the markets with positive migration, there's job growth, probably high income job growth being added, but they're also affordable. And they probably don't have as much regulation that makes it difficult to quickly develop land 
into you know new housing units, which has always been the challenge in California. So an example would be uh, Boise. So, well, I've got family in Boise. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. We do. So the census data that shows migration trends is fantastic data, but it's always old, right? It's always belated, which makes it only only so practical. So we're always trying to figure out ways to measure pivots between regions and changes in migration trends and figure out where people are moving. If you take one of the things we'll look at is if you take a one-way U-Haul truck, so like a 20-foot truck, and you take it from LA to Houston, it turns out that you know that cost of that rental looks way different than if you took the same truck back from Houston to LA. And so what we're seeing in the data is basically out-migration from a lot of the very expensive markets like you know mm-hmm. San Fran, San Jose, Orange County. The U-Haul data shows that all these trucks are basically leaving but not coming back. The number one immigration market, according to that data, and so we cross-reference that with every possible city that we track, Boise is just off the charts. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it raises some really exciting questions, like, you know, what's different about these markets? And then you go visit them and you're like, well, no, it's a, it's a fantastic place to live. I would totally understand why this is like the definition of servant, right? Like you get this beautiful, fantastic life experience, but you don't have to pay the same as you would in any of the other major metro areas that would be, you know, a truly urban center. Zach, I'd be really interested how Blacksburg rates on that scale. Like, Oh, it's so insulated. I know, but we constantly show up on like top 10 lists of like, you know, cities for this reason or that reason, like cities to live in in the United States for one reason or another. Not that I'm asking for the real estate market in Blacksburg to become <laughs> any more. <laughs> well, it's, it's insulated because it's a university town. Yeah. You know, it's like. I just think it's like. That's such an incredible place to live. Mm-hmm. And there's so many benefits. But everybody that I know that lives in Boise, which is not a long list, but they like people from Boise love Boise. I'm not surprised to hear that. But that's oh, how Blacksburg people feel too. My family lives there. They love it. Love they, it. They love it. They like didn't want to go and then they moved. They had a, they had a job offer and like, all right, we're there. And they're like, oh, we're never moving again. It's incredible. Slash like hope mm-hmm. that a bunch of people don't live there because yeah. <laughs> that's part of the appeal. I'll send you the, the chart we have that summarizes the Boise at the top of the stack. It is pretty exciting to see. It's you know, and you can't you can't help it. It's it's where the trucks are going to, and you can mm-hmm. see you know where where people are moving. So it, it's pretty exciting. That's really cool, Todd. One last thing I'd, I'd like to ask you before we wrap up the show is, you know, you are a consultant to building product manufacturers. You're in a very similar role that we play. I'd, I'd really love to know like what advice you would give any manufacturer listening, and more specifically. Like, what advice do you try to give manufacturers that they don't listen to you about that they really do need to listen to? You're like almost beating your head against the wall. Like, I wish you would just listen to me about this. Please listen to me. But they don't. And maybe you don't have that issue. But I'd be really curious to know, like, what are the things that you see that you see that there's opportunity for manufacturers to take advantage of? Yeah. Well, there's several things that definitely come to mind. First of all, you know, we spent a lot of time and energy trying to measure remodeling. And early on, we found that it was really important for us to break apart remodeling projects that was caused by large, like tarot, big projects where you're moving walls around and spending a whole lot of money versus smaller, more of like update projects where maybe you're not tearing out, but you are updating and improving kind of almost like a redecoration, but maybe with some fixtures. And I feel like I've talked to a number of executives or people that are even running, you know, say their product category. And there's a bias towards building product companies, believing that all of the products are big projects. That, you know, the, the narrative is that someone, you know, HGTV, they moved into their home and they're doing the whole, you know, the whole kitchen or they're doing the whole exterior. 
And more often than not, what we're seeing is a large part of their business are actually being driven by these much more smaller updates. And when we build up very, very thoughtfully what you need to believe for big project spending to grow versus small project spending to grow, we totally see outpaced performance within the small project, you know, update remodels. So I would spend a whole lot more time thinking about, you know, if rather than a $40,000, you know, bathroom remodel, what was this household going to do for $5,000 or similar for other product categories? Mm. Because that's the part of the market that we definitely believe is going to, is going to grow the fastest over the next few years. And and there's a whole backstory on that, but I definitely believe that they should spend more time looking at smaller refresh, small project updates. And then the other thing is, you know, I, I'm always struck by we've kind of are in this unique position where we we deal we with a lot of the top master plan developers. We see the type of homes they they have to come up with what the community is going to look like years in advance. Basically, building a city out of nothing, thinking about everything from the school to the types of you know amenities, whether or not there should be self-driving cars. Like these are discussions that they're having that we're we're involved in. They're working with the architects, and very very frequently we find that the people who are inventing products at the building product companies, the designers or the product managers are kind of doing it in a bubble. They might even be doing some interesting consumer research. But what we're trying to do more of is just connect the dots where we give the opportunity for not the salespeople, but the thought leaders that are going to be coming up with the types of products that are going to be in the homes two years from now, three years from now, all these innovative things. Why not put them in a room? Because they're not competing, but they're really tackling a lot of the same fundamental issues. And as an example, I would point to that topic of serving that we were talking about before. So if you thought, you know, a couple of years ago about high density, how do people want to live? What type of community? Well, it turns out that probably there's a different number of cars that they might own. They might value other things about like their pets, other forms of technology. If you're a little bit closer to one another, you might want to pay a little bit more for security. There's an obvious tech smart home play there too. Just spend more time interacting with those people. So we actually do a housing design summit and the next one's in February in Phoenix and we bring together all of those type of people. So the, the thought leaders from the architecture community, leaders from house, you know, thought leaders among some of the master plans, the kind of the right type of leadership of building product companies. There's no sponsorships. It's closed door. There's not really any press. It's just an opportunity to get together, do more of that because that's an opportunity to, to come up with a better product. That's excellent. I mean, I think super, super insightful. You know, Todd, we're so thankful you came on the show. And I know Beth and I will continue to, to follow you and the rest of your team on, on LinkedIn. But if, if somebody wants to connect with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of the podcast and really enjoy both of you guys on a regular basis. Listen to it. The best way to reach out is send me an email directly, T uh, Tomalak at realestateconsulting.com. They can go to our website, which is just realestateconsulting.com. Reach out to me or anyone from our team on LinkedIn. We're not going to blow you off. We're not like that. So please reach out and we would love to you know, talk more. And there's probably other things that we could talk about that we totally didn't touch on, but if, if we can help, we will. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. And if you want more great content like this, go to venvio.com slash podcast. Until next time, I'm Zach Williams alongside Beth Popniklov. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to Smarter Building Materials Marketing. 
with Zach Williams and Beth Popnikoloff. To get the resources mentioned in this podcast, visit venvio.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening.